If you like sports or know anyone who likes sports, so if you live in the city of Memphis, you probably notice something most sports fans do. When sports teams do well, fans tend to take on first-person language. We. We looked good tonight. We have a great chance of making the playoffs. We have 16 championships. Uh, if you're a Gris fan, lately it's been more of, uh, we should have a high draft this year. The psychological term for this is basking in reflective glory. Basically, people like winning, and they like identifying themselves with winners. They glory in the victory of another. They didn't do anything. They didn't leave their couch. They didn't sweat. They didn't impact the game at all, but they claim the credit of another. The team's victory becomes their victory. And in fact, people feel better uh, when when their team wins. This is why some people only cheer for teams who win, and they cheer for all the teams who win. But if you pay close attention to fans, not all of them, but a lot of them, when their teams lose, they start using third-person language. They. Uh, the Grizzlies look terrible tonight. The Tigers look bad this year. They have no defense. They have no chance of making the playoffs. It moves from we, we look great, to they, they suck. This is called uh, cutting off of reflective glory. The same fans now distance themselves from the teams who lost. And why? People hate losing. They don't want to identify themselves with failure, and certainly not with the failure of someone else. Group identity makes sense with sports because there's a common city. Uh, usually, right? A common people and purpose, geography and goal. When your team wins, you bask in their glory. glory, And you're more likely to talk about them, to rep their merch, to go to a game, uh, to watch them on TV. And when they lose, you're more likely to distance yourself from them. People like to win. They like to identify with winners. They like to bask in that glory. And that identity shapes the way that they live. It's not an odd thing uh, to hang pictures of tigers or bears around your house in our city, um, or even elephants, bulldogs, hogs. You would think we were uh, a, a community obsessed with wildlife. Some people, of course, ex spend exorbitant money in the name of their teams. Some people build entire uh, communities, friend groups, or schedules around their sport team. So sport teams... They exemplify this tribal identity, and especially one driven by the desire to win and not lose. Uh, but it's, of course, not a, exclusive to sports. Christians, likewise, if you think about it, share a common city, a shared population and purpose, and we certainly bask in the glory of another. In fact, we're the only group on the planet that's promised total and final victory, and we did nothing for it. As unworthy as we are, we bask in the glory of another. But the strange thing for Christians, even more strange than that, right? It's common for people to bask in the glory of another. The strange thing for Christians, it's not that we're guaranteed victory uh, or the basking in the glory of another, but that the road to victory often looks like defeat, at least in the eyes of the world, right? We daily carry our crosses. We die to rise. We suffer to grow. And in fact, as we'll see this morning, our suffering is a sign that we're part of this group destined for victory. Why is that? How does suffering show that we belong to this group? Our text this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1. 
verses 27 through 30. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning. We pray that as a result of this sermon that we would love you more, that we would more eagerly await the return of your son. We do pray that we would live in a way that is consistent with our heavenly citizenship, in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be unified as a people around you and your word and your son. And we do pray that you would use us to advance the gospel in this city and around the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What allows Christians to persevere together in the face of opposition for the sake of the gospel? What allows Christians to persevere together in the face of opposition for the sake of the gospel? We'll see three things from our text. Our politics, our partnership, and our promise. Our politics, partnership, and promise. First, our politics. In the previous section, Paul has been um, commenting on his situation. The Philippians might be inclined to think that his being in prison is a hindrance to the gospel, but actually, um, as we've seen, the gospel is advancing. Paul's shared it with the guard. It's become known, in fact, to the, to the entire imperial or praetorium guard. Um, the brothers there in Rome have become even bolder. They're sharing the gospel even more fearlessly. And the gospel is going forth and Paul rejoices. And on top of that, while Rome might oppose Paul, God does not. And he rejoices in this. That though they might condemn Paul now, he knows that God will not. He rejoices because he awaits his final salvation and vindication before God. The one opinion that matters. The one sentence that matters. And whether he dies is not of ultimate concern. Only that Christ be honored in his life or death. And in fact, for Paul to die means to be with Jesus, which is much better. Paul, of course, as we saw, he thinks that he'll be released because that's better for the Philippians, for their progress and joy in the faith. And so now he turns his attention from um, kind of his affairs, from talking about himself, to that of the Philippians. Verse 27, just one thing. Uh, if you've ever been in conversation with someone and the conversation is going well, and then they say, oh, and just one thing I wanted to talk about, okay? So enough about Paul, enough about me. There's one thing I wanted to talk about. And it deals with their unity, their doctrine, and their perseverance. And it gives us Paul's first command. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul employs uh, a very particular word here for to live. It's not what you'd expect. It's not. Um, it doesn't mean just to live. It doesn't mean um, something similar like to walk, which he uses a lot in other books. It, it literally means to live as a citizen, or you might think to discharge one's duties as a citizen. It's not simply about living, but living in a particular way is defined by a particular citizenship of heaven. 
Paul employs the same language in chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding the context is helpful. Um, in 42 AD, Philippi was refounded as a Roman colony. So it, it had already been for about 100 years under Roman rule. But it was made a Roman colony. Caesar Augustus encouraged his military veterans to move there. Citizenship was conveyed on a majority of the citizens. So most people who lived in the Roman Empire, they weren't citizens. It was only about 14%. But a high percentage of Philippi actually had a Roman citizenship, which came with huge privileges. And in return, of course, the city was loyal to the emperor. And this loyalty to the emperor would have been on full display in the imperial cult. So the emperor Nero at this time, he was worshipped like any of, the, any of the other gods, but not just like any of the other gods. He was elevated to an even higher status, and he was dubbed, he was given the title, the Lord and Savior of the world. So it's a big deal that Philippi is considered a colony of Rome, a big deal for any of these Christians if they have citizenship in particular. Um, but being part of a colony means swearing absolute allegiance to Rome and to Nero. So Paul tells them here to live as citizens of heaven and to do so in a, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel message, the good news that Jesus is the king who saves. He's not saying that they're no longer citizens of Rome, but he is lifting their eyes up to where they've given their greater allegiance or where it ought to be. Their greater allegiance is not Rome, but to heaven. It's not to Nero, but to Christ. Paul's language is unmistakably political. And when I say political, I don't mean uh, politics, perhaps in the way that you're thinking about it, right? We're not to write Jesus Christ at the ballot come November. But I do mean that Jesus is king of a real kingdom. He has real authority over us. His citizenship comes with real um, responsibilities or demands. His kingdom, his authority, his citizenship, they ought to supersede any other citizenship or group we may be a part of. You may or may not know this, but Jessica is a British citizen by birth. Her parents are British. She was born in Cambridge, England. The Lord brought her family uh, to Texas when she was about four months old through her father's work. And their parents thought it was going to be a temporary stay, so they didn't pursue citizenship. 30 years later, they're still here. I praise God for that. And a couple years ago, Jess finally pursued citizenship. Getting uh, you know married, it doesn't make you a citizen like in the movies. The naturalization ceremony was held at the Benjamin Hooks Library, and it really was beautiful. There were people there representing over 50 countries. For many of them, you could see this was a real turning point in their lives, and they joined with eager expectation and hope um, for their future as U.S. citizens and, and what all that might entail for them. And then at one point, they were all call, called to take an oath which is necessary for becoming a citizen of our country. And it reads like this. This is the oath that, that they gave, that they made, that Jess made. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, 
that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Every person entered that room with a previous citizenship and previous loyalties. But to leave that room as a citizen of the U.S., it cost the cost was surrendering your previous allegiance, your previous citizenship, and giving that to the U.S. to obey its laws, to uphold its constitution, to defend it from enemies. You can't be loyal to two sovereigns or two lords. Paul here, he's not calling them away from their Roman citizenship, but he is calling them to something higher, one that needs to supersede their trust and faith in Rome. Friends, don't miss this. We can't swear total allegiance to Christ and to anyone or anything else. His rule is absolute. And because he's worthy and because he loves us, he won't settle for less. Rome will be but a memory in a history about the kingdom of Jesus. Lift your eyes higher. The United States, as wonderful as it is and can be, is not where our ultimate allegiance lies. Now, I do think being a faithful Christian will most often make us faithful American citizens, right now at least, but our ultimate political hopes, our hopes for a righteous king and justice and equity, must ultimately lie in heaven. And when these two kingdoms conflict, if they ever will, there ought to be no question about where our loyalty lies. As citizens of heaven live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our lives are dictated by our heavenly citizenship and by the gospel. We are to live worthy of the gospel. Importantly, Paul doesn't say um, live worthy if you are to receive the gospel. Right? You don't have to be worthy to receive the gospel. If that were the case, heaven would have a citizenship of one. The gospel is good news because it's a message, or its message is that though we were unworthy, God has counted us worthy in Christ. That though we lived as enemies of the king, that though we broke his laws and sought to set ourselves up as little kings, though our debts to him were insurmountable, that God has forgiven us in Christ. Jesus, of course, we know, he lived on behalf of criminals perfectly. He obeyed the laws they broke. He, the king, died for those criminals. He bore their punishment, the punishment they deserved. He rose from the dead, and he's enthroned as the true and only Savior and King. And if you're listening, you're not a Christian. If you trust in him, you can have eternal life. You can have citizenship in his kingdom forever. Jesus is the king, and he offers you pardon. The unworthy ones are treated as worthy, and Christ's expectation, his command, is that we live worthy of that gospel message, that we live up into the reality of the gospel, that it be obvious to those around us where our citizenship lies. If you spend time around um, a citizen from a different country, you would pick up on it immediately. Just as parents can't go anywhere without being asked about their British citizenship, and as similar as our cultures are, you quickly pick up on the differences. Uh, they drink tea the way we drink coffee. Uh, instead of a car trunk, they have a car boot. Um, Brits tend to be more direct than Americans. Even though they live in America and have been here for um, 30 years, their citizenship is obvious. 
Well, it ought to be plain to those around us where our citizenship lies. Again, not because we're bad or unfaithful U.S. citizens, but because the character of our lives is determined by a different citizenship, a different ruler, a different land. And as representatives of that heavenly country, we ought to live our lives in a worthy manner. There ought to be consistency between the king's message we herald, the gospel, and the lives we lead. We have a high calling to represent the king and deliver his message to this to, to the people around us, to this passing kingdom. So as citizens of heaven, we ought to live worthy of the message about heaven's king. But what does it look like to live worthy of it? Paul has something very particular in view. We've considered now our politics, our ultimate hope in heaven's king. And now we consider our partnership. That is our Christian unity. And this is Paul's major concern for the Philippian church. Verse 27 then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Whether Paul is released, and as we saw last week, he believes that he will be, or whether he's not released and he ends up sending Timothy, Paul hopes to either see or hear one thing, that they're standing firm in one spirit, one accord or purpose, contending together for the faith of the gospel. You might recall that Paul wrote Philippians in part to deal with an issue of disunity in their body. We see this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I urge Eudia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So two prominent women in the church are at odds with one another. We're not sure what it looks like. Perhaps they have a competitive spirit with one another. Um, Paul's concern would be them unwittingly splitting the church into factions, people taking sides. And Paul's writing to address this, this issue of disunity. Just one thing. The one thing Paul wants to make sure he sees in person or hears about is that they're walking in unity, standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together. Why is this his concern? Well, the Christian life, it's not an individual exercise. It's not simply that they're individual citizens of heaven. They're a colony of heaven in a colony of Rome. Their church, their entire membership, it's like a piece of heaven on earth. And that's something you can only see when they're together. One of the things that makes it most apparent is their unity. And it's not any kind of unity. It's, it's an otherworldly, a heavenly unity. A unity that doesn't make sense on this planet or in that city or in this one. Not only was Philippi a Roman colony, but it was socially stratified as a city. So there were uh, basically various social and political levels or titles that citizens could acquire. Think, um, think like the Hunger Games sectors. And so everyone, everyone jockeys for status for um, different titles that could be bestowed on them. And as you would expect, your status would dictate who you spend time with, right? You don't hang out with people uh, in a class below yours. The unity of the Philippian church, it's paramount to their progress and joy, paramount to their persevering, as we'll see in a second, and it's paramount to their gospel witness. There's nothing compelling to the world about a bunch of people from the same social class hanging out with each other. Right? The world is full of people hanging out with people just like them. They're called friend groups. 
There's nothing compelling about a church comprised of all the same type of people either. That looks uh, more like Rome and less like heaven. More like Memphis, less like Revelation 7. But this little church in Philippi, if you recall, their first members were a Roman jailer and his family, a wealthy, God-fearing woman in her household, and a, and a former fortune-telling slave. That didn't make sense then, and it doesn't make sense now, not apart from Christ, at least. Jamie Dunlop, in his book, Compelling Community, he describes two, two types of Christian communities, um, oftentimes the way people conceive of doing uh, ministry. One is called Gospel Plus. It's a Gospel Plus community. This is where you build churches and ministries around what people have in common, okay? So it's the Gospel Plus. So you might have an entire church for bikers or nerds or hipsters or one specific ethnicity, and it's a very common strategy, as odd as that might sound. Um, but it makes sense. It's a lot easier. You can get a lot of people who are similar together, um, and it happens all over the world. Or within the ministries of the church, you put everyone in groups where they have something in common to build on. Okay, so you put all the college students together, all the young adults together, the young marrieds together, the marrieds with kids together, all the singles together, um, or it could be something like the athletes together, the creatives together. And those aren't necessarily bad things, and they can be helpful as people um, have common, common struggles or giftings. But ministry this way, it's built around what people have in common, and the fundamental thing to all of them that they're building on, it's not Christ. It's an age or a stage or a hobby. It's what Jamie's calling gospel plus, gospel plus something else. And frankly, it's not very compelling. People the same age with the same interests hang out all over our city. It doesn't reflect heaven. Paul has in mind a unity that transcends culture, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, hobbies, age, and education because it has to. Because the most basic thing in common is Christ. This is what Jamie calls a gospel-revealing community. You can't look at this group of people and say, oh, okay, okay, this is the young adults, um, or this is the group of hipsters, or this is the socially active group. You look at it and you say, oh, why are a jailer, a merchant, and a slave spending time together? That doesn't make sense. Why are the Bankston spending time with these younger members? Why are some of the members who have nothing in common caring for each other and spending time together? Why are all the members and the minorities especially sacrificing in the hopes of building a multi-ethnic church? It doesn't make sense. Lord willing, if the Lord adds seasoned saints to our body, in the future folks will say, why are the young people spending their Friday night singing hymns at the nursing home? There ought to be a depth to our relationships, right? A real living out of our covenant commitments and a breath to our relationships that simply does not make sense apart from Christ. Why are they doing that? I don't know much about heaven, but I expect it looks like and feels and smells like that place, a world of unity and love. Why are those people spending time together? I don't know Jesus, but I, sus I suspect these are his followers. Look at how they love each other. Look at their unity when they have so little in common. Friends, how are your relationships in the church? What is your unity like? Are you, is there anyone in the body that you're not walking in unity with? Someone you need to be reconciled to? 
If so, do the hard work of seeking them out. Confess any sins that you've committed against them or make them aware if they've hurt you. Repent where you must. Forgive where you have opportunity. Are you spending time with members who are not like you? There's nothing wrong with having friendships with folks you have things in common, right? That's natural. And I think also God-honoring in the sense that we enjoy the gifts he's given us. But that should not be characteristic of all your relationships. And if you're thinking, I don't know what to talk about with that one member. Every time I talk to them, I don't know what to talk about. Talk about the one thing you have in common, Jesus. How did the Lord save you? What's he teaching you? What do you love about him right now? How can I pray for you? Go out of your way to build relationships of depth and breadth. Relationships that, from the world's perspective, from our city's perspective, don't make any sense apart from Christ. If we want our little church to stand out in a big way, we have to be unified. We've got to look like heaven. We see Paul is concerned with our Christian unity, our Christian unity, but it's not a generic unity. Our culture, right, loves the idea of unity, a kind of generic, convictionless, abandon whatever you believe so that we can all be on the same page, lowest common denominator, unity. That's not what Paul has in mind. It's Christian unity, yes, but it's Christian unity. He says, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants to hear or see that they're standing firm. That is that they're immovable. The, the image that this word carries with it could be like soldiers unwilling to abandon their post or their position. Christianity, it experienced initial security in the Roman Empire, but that's soon going to change. Rome takes no issue with the worship of deities, right? A god is a dime a dozen to them. They called the Christians atheists because they denied the pantheon of gods. Right, so they're saying it's okay to worship your God. It's not okay to say he's the only one. And it's certainly not okay to say that Nero isn't Lord and Savior. Imperial worship would happen at every public event. Imagine being at um, a Grizzlies game or the Shell or the Orpheum. And before, before the show begins, rather than singing the Star-Spangled Banner, every person sang a worship song to the emperor. He's proclaimed as... Lord and Savior of the world. Everyone's standing, and you, your wife, your kids, or you and your roommate, you're the only people in the stadium sitting, and everyone's looking at you. The temptation, of course, is going to be to stand, perhaps to stand and to mumble some words, or perhaps to just stand and sing out and completely blend in, to not stand firm. You see, it's not enough to simply be unified. The unity must be centered on the real Christ and on him alone. Paul wants to hear that they're standing firm because the temptation is to slide. Okay, When you're being pushed, the temptation is to slide, to move with the culture. And Rome, or our culture even, they weren't saying to completely abandon the gospel, just to evolve with the times. It's 2020. You, you seriously still believe what about gender and marriage? And you continue to believe that people are sinful and you use words like that, and that Jesus was punishing their place for sins? That doesn't seem loving. Oh, and you read all this in a book that's 2,000 years old? Just, you know, keep the real heart of it. What you got in common with everyone else? God is love. Just move with us as we move. Is there anything more 
offensive in our culture than the perception of intolerance. And unity and doctrine or dogma are perceived as polar opposites in our culture. But Christian unity, it's doctrinal. It's based not on our claims, but on God's revelation about himself. As the pressure increases for the Philippians, and as it likely will for us, unity is necessary for our perseverance. We need one another if we're going to stand firm and not be tossed around. This is what Paul has in view as well in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. He explains there that Christ has given good gifts to his church, uh, that pastors preach and teach to equip the saints for the work of the ministry until we all mature. Verse 14, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. The world will aim to move us as it moves. To persevere, we have to be united. We have to take uh, like a Spartan shield-to-shield stand, protecting the whole in one another, and we do so by teaching right and accurate doctrine and correcting and shutting down false teaching. And it's a mutual responsibility, not just that of the pastors. We stand firm and we do it together. But our, our posture isn't only defensive. Okay, standing firm. It also seeks to advance the gospel. We ought to contend together for the faith. This means co-laboring for the gospel side by side. We saw this just a, just a few minutes ago in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Um, Paul says, To help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. We're reminded that evangelism isn't the job of the pastor or of any one member. It's the job of the church. It's something we do together. I've been so encouraged by all the stories of evangelism we've been hearing in our prayer Zooms, um, the stories that I hear as I interact with the members as well. And we're doing this, I believe. We are contending together for the faith of the gospel, laboring together, working alongside together. But what would it look like to contend together even more, to be involved in one another's evangelism. As you hear about members sharing the gospel, you could regularly pray for them. Call them up and ask, is there any progress with that friend of yours or your neighbor, your coworker, or uh, your son that you've been sharing the gospel with? Text them verses to encourage them in their efforts. Once this is all over, seek to spend time with them and their friends. If you have a friend you're sharing the gospel with, invite them to our gathering. As Josh mentioned a couple weeks ago, you can text other members and let them know, hey, I'm bringing a friend of mine who's a non-Christian at the gathering. would love for you to meet them, to love on them, to have lunch with us afterwards. Um, invite them to other things that we do, like playing games. Bring them in, I hope, um, that they'll taste this heavenly love and unity and hear the message that we herald. I was reminded of how the Lord uses communities to evangelize when... DJ, one of our members, shared his testimony with me during our membership interview. DJ and I went to college together. We were in the same fraternity together. And there were several men in our fraternity who were sharing the gospel with DJ. And one brother in particular was really faithful about um, telling DJ all the things he was learning one summer. And that's that summer when we got back to um, university in the fall, that one brother and another brother shared the gospel with DJ again, and it finally clicked. The Lord saved him. We were contending together for the faith of the gospel, 
and then DJ came to Christ. And now, by God's grace, DJ is a member of our church, and we can contend together for the gospel. Praise the Lord for that. So should the culture press in on us more, the goal isn't merely to stand firm. It isn't merely survival. It's revival, that the gospel would advance through our efforts. How do we persevere? One, our politics, right? We're reminded that our citizenship and our allegiance is to another. Okay, we can't bend a knee to someone else. Our partnership, it requires Christian unity as we rely on one another, we hold one another accountable, we teach with one another, we contend together. And lastly, we come to our promise. That is a promise from God to us. Verse 28, so Paul wants to see that they are standing firm, that they're contending together in the verse 28, and that they're not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. As it gets worse in the Roman Empire, and it will, the city of Rome is but a few years away from the streets being lined with Christians as human torches. Paul tells them not to be frightened of their opponents. What? Like, do not fear them. To quote Jesus, they can only kill your bodies. Don't fear those who can split up your families, shut down your businesses, jail you, kill you. Don't be frightened of them. I think it's important for us to understand as well that uh, that martyrdom isn't um, the only means of persecution or oppression, right? Here in the States, right now at least, opposition probably looks more like, um, don't fear those who can mock you. Don't fear those who can withhold a raise from you. Don't fear those who can boycott your business. Um, Don't fear those who scare you. Paul's telling us not to fear them. Why? Again, this kind of thinking only makes sense if, if final vindication awaits, that they might oppose us now, but God will finally save us. And even if it gets worse, if you got the worst of it, death, that's all they can do, right? Kill our bodies and send us straight to be with Jesus. Death is actually gain. And then Paul adds one more thing here. He says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. This, that is their opposition to you, them opposing you, it's actually a sign that destruction awaits them, and it's a sign that salvation awaits you. In Memphis, you can tell it's spring because your car is covered in yellow-green pollen. It's a sign. You can tell it's winter because or fall uh, because leggings and pumpkin spice lattes abound. It's a sign. <laughs> Well, the fact that the Philippians are being opposed, it's a sign to both parties. It's a sign to the Philippians that they will be saved and that their opponents will be destroyed. It's one event, one sign, but with two purposes, and the sign is from God, so it's a crystal clear message. Israel's salvation out of Egypt serves as a kind of prototypical salvation in the Bible. God's people are brought up out of slavery, out of oppression from a foreign ruler. A substitute dies in their place to make this possible. They pass through the waters of judgment. They're made, constituted as God's people, given a law, given a land. Well, God repeatedly states or stated that he was going to save them by signs. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8. Then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with terrifying power and with signs and wonders. All the plagues were signs. They were pointers. Israel, I will save you. 
Egypt, I will destroy you if you persist. This is perhaps perhaps most evidently seen in Israel passing through the Red Sea. There was a singular event. The waters were parted. For Israel, it, it, it meant their salvation as they passed through the waters of judgment. They could see God acting on their behalf. There was a sign. For Egypt, it, it meant their destruction as they pursued God's people to oppress them, and the waters of judgment came down on them. That they were opposing God's people should have been a light bulb to them, that they were opposing God himself. One event, one water, one sign, two messages, two peoples. Salvation from one, destruction for the other. This doesn't mean that if someone is opposing you, it's a guarantee of their destruction. It's merely a sign of where they're headed. Paul himself, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he says he was so zealous that he persecuted the church, but God saved him. We obviously should not desire the destruction of anyone. As long as they breathe, there is hope. We should have even more compassion on those who oppose us. Paul was sharing the gospel with the very guards who kept him in chains, and he was awaiting the opportunity to share the gospel before the Roman tribunal. It should give us hope. Our op- this opposition to us should give us hope of our future, but it should also sober us to the fate of those who hate us. We should warn them of the destruction that is to come. We should offer them the same hope that we have, the salvation that could be theirs. So this opposition to us, it's a sign, a sign that our opponents will be destroyed if they don't repent. That makes sense. To oppose God, sorry, to oppose God's people is to oppose God. It's a bit like going to war against um, the U.S. with a BB gun, right? It's not a good idea. But why is our suffering a sign of salvation, a sign that we're Christians? Aren't we supposed to be living our best lives now, as a popular author puts it? Shouldn't, being, shouldn't it be the opposite of being opposed now as a sign of future destruction or winning now as a sign of future winning? Verse 29, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. Okay, it's been granted that we believe. That makes sense, right? God has to be sovereign over salvation. Apart from his sovereign and gracious initiative in choosing us, in speaking to us, in sending his son to us, in his spirit applying that very work to us, in regeneration, in giving us the gifts of faith and repentance, we would never believe. Our natures were too, they were too corrupt. Left to ourselves, we oppose God. Our faith has been granted to us. It's a gift. It's a good gift. And we like that. We love that. We love gifts. Bring them on. It says that's not the only thing. So what else are you giving, God? For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, okay, okay, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. So the reason the Philippians and Paul are suffering at the hands of Rome is ultimately what? God has sovereignly and graciously given them the gift of suffering and suffering for Christ. Two two quick qualifiers. This doesn't mean that suffering is in and of itself a good thing. It's not. And it doesn't mean that God is the author of suffering, but God is nonetheless using and purposing this suffering for the good of the Philippians. Genesis 50 illustrates this well for us. Joseph's brothers, they planned, they committed heinous evil against him. They nearly killed him, but instead they chose to do something worse. They sold him into slavery, where he would go from slave to prisoner. He spent years suffering in the hands of evil men. But look at Joseph's perspective, or hear it rather, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 
you planned evil against me, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Joseph's brothers planned, desired, and executed evil in selling Joseph into slavery. And it doesn't say, but God used it for good. He was able to turn things around and get it back on track for Joseph and for God's people. Rather, they planned it for evil. God planned it for good. The same act, two parallel purposes, one evil, one good, one at the hands of responsible volitional men, the other at the hands of a good and sovereign God. So suffering, it's not good. Rome's opposition is clearly evil because they'll be destroyed for it. And at the same time, God is purposing it for his people's good. And then second quick qual- quick qualifier, this should be obvious to us, but um, for those of out there who are thinking it, I guess, uh, we shouldn't go seeking opposition, right? The goal is not to be jerks for Jesus. We ought to be honest, yes, but also compassionate, humble, life-giving. We ought to give off the aroma of Christ. And if persecution comes, it's simply because we were faithfully delivering the message of our king, not because we were trying to wage war on his behalf. God sovereignly gives the gift of faith, and he sovereignly gives the gift of suffering. And this is certainly true of all suffering, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Nothing falls outside of his knowledge or will. But Paul has a very particular suffering in view here. It's suffering, he says, for Christ. It's the kind of suffering that comes because we're in Christ. It's opposition at the hands of those opposed to God. And God graciously gives this to some, if not all, Christians. So why would God give this to us? How is how is suffering for Christ a good thing? A few quick reasons. One, we look like Jesus. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering. Christ's suffering was, of course, unique in that he was, it was um, suffering to bear sins. But if Jesus was a man of suffering, should we be shocked when suffering comes on us when we're preaching the same message? So we look like Jesus when we suffer. We're actually walking like he walked. We're living like he lived. Second, we become like Jesus. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, well, as we'll see later, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. That makes sense. That's good. And the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. When we suffer for Christ, we're actually made more like Jesus. We know him more intimately. Our suffering produces character, 1 Peter 1.6 our suffering produces endurance, and our endurance produces hope, Romans 5.3. It makes us like Jesus, and it fixes our eyes upon him. And third, as we see um, here in this text, because we look like Jesus and become like Jesus, we're actually assured that we're in Jesus. This opposition, it's meant to be a sign of God's promise to us, that though we might be opposed now, we will be saved later. That though we might die now, we will have life with Jesus. Final vindication, final or final salvation and vindication await. And we can be sure we're in him because God has given us this sign. It's a reminder that we belong to God. That though our family and friends may push us away, Jesus never will. That though they may withhold a promotion from us at work, God withholds nothing from us. That though they mock us, God has nothing but kind things to say to us in Christ. 
They can take from us here, but our reward will be great in heaven where our true citizenship lies. And this opposition to us on behalf of Christ, it's a sign, a reminder, a pointer of God's promise to us that we're walking like Jesus, that we're looking like Jesus, and that when we die, we will be with him. Herein lies one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, that though victory has been won, though it's been guaranteed, though we really stand between two great victories, that of the cross and the consummation of the kingdom, the path to glory comes by way of the cross. Our being opposed is a sign that we're being saved. And if we suffer for being a Christian, it's not because God is mad at us. It's because he's pleased with us. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went on from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. If our desire is to live worthy of the gospel, imagine if we do just that and we're counted worthy enough to be treated shamefully on behalf of his name, that we actually look like him, that we're made to be like him, and in doing so we are assured that we belong him, that we belong to him. This, of course, makes no sense unless Jesus is worthy, like really worthy, worth honoring in life and death, worth being conformed to in his image, even if it means giving up comfort in our very lives, worth risking death because it means gaining him. It makes sense of the gospel's really good news that Jesus is king and he has made a way for his enemies, us, to be pardoned. We've been given an incredibly high calling. As citizens of heaven, we represent the rule of its king. When the nations of this world rage against him and his people, Will we persevere together? Will we continue to seek to advance the gospel? Will we be comforted by God's providence and his good promises to us that he intends to save us? May we stand firm and contend together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that though we were unworthy, that you have saved us by the gospel, that though we were enemies of you and your son, that you have made us your sons and your daughters, that you've made us brothers and sisters of Christ. We do pray that we would continue to live worthy of the gospel and even more so. We pray that it would be apparent to all those around us that our citizenship is in heaven. We pray that should the world press in on us, that we would stand firm in the truth of the gospel. We pray that you would use us to advance the gospel from Memphis to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.